The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded Australia's most trusted energy provider by CanStar three times. Maybe it's time you switch to Red. And for Prince Wine Store, Bank Street, South Melbourne and delivering Australia-wide, princewinestore.com.au. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome everybody to Don't Shoot the Messenger. This is our 265th episode. Gosh, 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 Caro Wilson, where has the time gone? That is a lot of episodes, Corrie, when you hear it like that and hopefully many, many more. Well, I'm certainly back in the studio after a little bit of illness last week. I think it was possibly post-festival disorder. I don't know, but um, I did get an attack of the lurgy Tuesday, Wednesday last week. But great to be back here, Caro. And of course, uh, we send our thanks to our sponsors, Red Energy and Prince Wine Store. Caro, we've got lots to talk about today, including, uh, guess what? It's the, it was the coronation on the weekend. So yes, we have a fair bit to discover and discuss there. And uh, Miles Thompson will be in a little bit later to discuss Pinot Noirs for your mum on Mother's Day. Caro is grumpy. I have a few amazing facts related to royal families. I also have a book which is tipped to be long-listed for the Miles Franklin this year. And Caro and I have both been binging an amazing series which we love on Netflix and Caro has a recipe. More on all of that a little bit later. But Caro, first, we've had some terrific correspondence, including, do you remember last week you highlighted uh, Jill Watson, we knew her as Jill, who had driven all the way from Bordertown upon hearing our pre Sorrento Writers Festival yes, podcast. Yes. <laughs> she was listening. So I won't, it's a lovely long email and I will cut to the chase, but I, I and I won't paraphrase that phrase though, because Jill has a lovely turn of phrase. And she said, I have been listening to your podcast for several years now and thoroughly enjoyed it. It feels like a peep into a life that's very different to mine and totally fascinating. I heard about the Sorrento Writers Festival through this podcast and thought it would be a wonderful experience. So as a birthday gift to myself, I booked in and my husband volunteered to drive me from Bordertown to Sorrento. And then they spent a couple of nights with daughters in Melbourne. The weekend, um, Jill says she had a fantastic time, so many stimulating ideas, opinions. One of the highlights was the Friday lunch where the topic was our political leaders with an excellent panel of high-caliber journalists to listen to. But another highlight, says Jill, was because of my most charming and friendly lunch companions, Susie and Michael. I attended the weekend on my own, my choice, which meant I didn't have a buddy to talk to and had to hope for random conversations with people I sat near at events. Susie and Michael would have been the loveliest couple to spend time with. When Susie turns her attention on you, you can feel yourself opening up like a flower to the sun. It's so true. It's so true because she's a good friend of Caro's as well. Imagine my surprise then, says Jill, when on Thursday I tuned into your podcast as I was driving to Narracourt to hear myself get a mention. I was gobsmacked. You really made my day. Later that afternoon, back in Bordertown, I was at the ATM when a young woman acquaintance went past. We both smiled and nodded. She walked a few paces past me, stopped, turned around and came back and said, I heard about you on the podcast, she said. So we had a little chat about the podcast and why we like it. And she went on her way. I'm now wondering if a few more Don't Shoot Potties will come out of the woodwork. Well, Jill, maybe you've started. Okay, Potties, so here's the challenge. We just want to have a little message from you, where you live, where our podcast listeners live. And um, we would love to hear far and wide where you are listening to us. That would be so nice. Caro, that was lovely from Jill. I was absolutely wrapped, only because we'd mentioned her. I'd heard about her from Susie. Susie has now read your letter, Jill. I hope you don't mind. This is like Chinese whispers across Australia. I'm catching up with her in Sydney this week. She, too, was very, very touched. So thank you for getting in touch. And, Corrie, we need to um, put out a bit of a challenge, don't we? Yes. Where are you listening to us? Where are you in the world? Are you in Bordertown? <laughs> Clearly we have two listeners there, which is very exciting. But where are you? We would love to hear remote Australia, rural outback Australia, on a farm, in an apartment in the city, in Ireland. We know we have a few in Ireland, Caro. Uh, we've got a few in the US who listen because they feel a bit homesick. So wherever you are, we'd just love to know. Send us a little message. Um, before we um, jump on, can I just um, thank – remember I meant, I keep mentioning um, – the gentleman listener who gave me uh, the whizzer or the Nutribullet during lockdown. 
<laughs> I, I did read this email. Well, Daniel Daniel sent me, uh, his name is Daniel, and the other day as I was thanking him again, he just I, I know his name is Daniel, it just completely went out of my head. Anyway, he just sent a little note to us saying, I'm just listening to your April 4 podcast in Singapore airport as I'm on my way home, where you once again thanked me for the whizzer. It made me smile. I'm glad my act of kindness has brought you the occasional smile. Isn't that nice? <laughs> I, I, it gave me a smile too, Corrie. I want to mention our friend Jane Labinus, who, noting our conversation last week about saffron milk caps, Miss Jane, my Clementine, I took your lovely gift home of those beautiful mushrooms and she just sliced them up and fried them up and served them on, oh, she served them on top of something. I think it was on top of something which was tomato-based. They were delicious. Oh, and Jane sent us a little hint to say that um, Lithuanian food has a lot of sour cream. There's a bit of bacon that she throws in with her pine mushrooms, but that she discovered them years ago through her Lithuanian husband. Whose eagle eye can spot them from miles away. <laughs> he guards his sources very carefully. And Jane notes my mother-in-law would fry them up with butter, onions and bacon. Yum. So and when we when we talk about companion food, uh, I do think mushrooms and bacon is a really good mix. Tick. Yes. Tick. And scallops, scallops and bacon are pretty good too. Somebody, yeah, mushrooms and bacon for mine. Something, you know, if you breakfast, mushrooms and bacon. Uh, pasta, mushrooms and bacon. There's a lot of different, yeah, a lot of different. Steak, mushrooms mm. and bacon. Anyway, we go on. Um, Caro, let's move to the topic of the week, which was the coronation, the coronation of King Charles III and Queen Camilla. And uh, I wondered what your thoughts were. We, of course, were very lucky to watch it. Both of you, both both you and I were lucky enough to watch it. <laughs> both of us. At, yeah, both of us. Us two at your home, your Melbourne home, in the company of your mum, Julia, who is a friend of the pod. Indeed, she has many friends outside there of the pod. And uh, your two aunts, Aunt, Aunt Button and Aunt Lil, and Clementine came and went a bit. And, of course, your gorgeous cousin, Georgie, who with me was a bridesmaid at your wedding. So it was so lovely to see her again. But uh, what a what a uh, – I don't know what I enjoyed more, watching the vision on television, which was just extraordinarily extravagant, or listening to the commentary of the three sisters. Yes. There was one comment when I said, what do you think of King Charles? No, don't like him. <laughs> Why? Because he said till death do us part and he was lying. <laughs> well, he wasn't probably lying at the time, but a lot of people don't forgive him for the Diana marriage. No. He was weak. He was sort of forced into it. And look, he was just weak. He went along with it. He should never have done it. Your mum was a little grumpy that it's not the same as Elizabeth. And and Lil, the youngest of the three sisters, you know, with a hat putting, she said, we're putting on a happy face. We're putting on a happy face and we're going to be positive about this. <laughs> well, Lil wore a tiara. Button had a most beautiful jumper, if you noticed, with um, sparkly crowns all over it. And bought as a, um, a brought, I should say, as a gift for the night, um, um, crown-shaped shortbreads with little gold and silver buttons all over them. They were delicious. They went very well with the, the afternoon food, tea the of cucumber and watercress well, sandwiches. Well, you girls started early. You started with a game of bridge in the afternoon. I don't know when you have time to ever watch football, Caroline Wilson, but look, maybe Saturday was a was a play date. Oh, know? no, I watched the Tigers. I, I was at the MCG, watched the start of the Tigers, rushed home, and as I was slicing up the sandwiches, watched Dion Prestia cut loose. But then I, we noticed, well, I knew this, my next-door neighbour, Alex, had Union Jacks in her upstairs windows, and she texted and said, come round for a drink. So we all, just before you arrived, we picked up our drinks and our cucumber sandwiches and wandered over next door and had a drink with her lot, her family. Like me, her husband had fled to another part of uh, Victoria. And like me, she was hosting family and we all had a drink and then we all came back and you arrived and we got stuck into the coronation chicken and the coronation quiche, which is amazing. And I'll give the recipe later on, Corrie. But Look, um, I thought um, the Tina Brown comment related to me from Anna from the op shop was interesting. It was Diana's fury raining over them that caused that dreadful weather. Of course, Prince William said something different the next day, didn't he? He said that he felt the Queen was watching over them with great love and support and would have been a very proud mother. Look, it was 
you you made you pointed this out, and someone else pointed it out last night actually before Footy Classified. As you can imagine, it was the woman producer in the room, and no men had watched it. Uh, Jackie Reed, but you pointed out that it looked a bit weird and gaudy and tacky because it was in colour and it looked too real. Because the last coronation, which we weren't alive for, was sort of sepia, wasn't it? It was black and white. It was just different. It was different. It felt, it felt quaint. And for me, being the age I am and having grown up with all my life, I've had Elizabeth as the queen. Uh, it just didn't feel the same. And I found myself in the lead up to it, the couple of weeks leading up to it, I didn't really care, even though for podcast purposes, I was doing a bit of research and I don't mind the old Hello magazine just quietly, but I felt myself quite disconnected in a way that I hadn't been with, for example, Harry and Meghan's funeral or... Wedding. Uh, they, wedding. Sorry, still wedding. Alive. Oh my God, sorry. I know, I know they've oh, left the sorry. family, but they're not dead. I know. I apologise. <laughs> my God, that was terrible. Uh, but I, I just felt myself really disconnected from this. And I think it's because in the last year or so, I've read two extraordinary books. One on one was a puff piece book, um, which I read dur- during um, January when I was unwell. And it was the only thing really I felt like reading, which was the biography of Camilla, which was such a puff piece. And then the other one, of course, I've talked about on the podcast, which is Tom Bow- Bower's quite extraordinary um, and forensic and amazing biography of and, and, and critical biography of now King Charles III. So I have a, a very um, clear view of my view of the two of them and it doesn't stack up against the extraordinary lifetime commitment of Queen Elizabeth. I just, I find it, I don't see the connection at all really. So I felt a bit, uh, I felt a bit discombobulated on Saturday night watching it. It did seem very garish and colourful and really over the top. I love his carriage. Yeah. Made in Australia. Who knew? And bright yellow. But uh, Carol, you know me, I love history. I'm a history, you know, fanatic. And I loved, I loved reading about the traditions of it and what would be happening. And it goes back to Edward II, or this one went back to George I or, or whatever it was. But, um, but I didn't, I didn't sense that. I just sensed that it was like a family do. As your mother said, where are the coronation gowns? Where are the tiaras? If the English aristocracy can't bring out a tiara for a coronation, when on earth are they ever going to wear them again? It did feel like um, an era has closed, an era is over. This is a new beginning. And boy, oh boy, I tell you what, after having had a full week at the festival and the lead up to the festival, discussing panels about The Voice, talking with Kerry O'Brien about what are the political, big political issues of 2023, and he just looks at you and says, voice to parliament. Um having given it a lot of thought about us as a nation and what is our history, that's not our, that, that what happened in England the other, in London the other day is not my history. It's nothing I relate to. And I suspect a lot of people feel that same way. Yeah, it, it probably was um, because it was filmed in colour and it was very bright and light and you could see the faces so closely. And, you know, th- this is nothing against um, Charles and Camilla, but they're not glamorous and beautiful and youthful the way, that, you know, the Queen was. Well, she probably wasn't so glamorous, but she was beautiful and very, very young. And, you know, they've got, you know, checkered pasts like everybody has. And we've seen it, you know, all to bear. And I did think, you know, this is really shallow, but that white dress she wore was very heavy, wasn't it? It's very heavy. And the crown just looked uncomfortable and she fiddled with it so much. It just was quite weird and... um I mean, my husband found the super tunica, which he is, says is the word of the year, that gold thing he went into. And that was a decision by Charles to do something a bit different and embracing all religions and all creeds and all of that. He couldn't understand why he went behind the curtain when they anoint his skin or whatever they do. I felt that some people slightly bend the rules. I mean, Catherine wasn't meant to wear a tiara, but she went pretty close to a tiara, didn't she? With It was meant to be full floral. It, it was, you know, bordering on jewels. She was sending a lot of messages to a lot of people. Yes. And her messages, I think her messaging, I think her branding was spot on. Now, do I agree with the messaging? I don't know. But she, Catherine is very much, she's now, you know, in the in the box seat and she is going to, with William, create a different kind of monarchy. And she set a tone with her children 
uh, there was it was very very much this is our moment we're coming into our moment. Fascinating to read, and you know, obviously, I read a bit about Harry, who he he either cut a lonely figure or he was animated and chatting to Princess Anne. Either way, he was clearly you know shunned. He didn't hang around. He wasn't on the balcony. He was in the third row, obscured by Anne's feather, which was bloody funny. But Princess Anne, I loved it when she rode out. By the way, I think she's going to she's going to be a big helper to King Charles. But um, the commercialisation of Meghan and Harry, it was just so funny to read on Instagram. I think it was Christian Dior, you know, describing how proud they were to dress Harry in the beautiful navy cashmere or navy wool suit, which rather tragically had his medals, morning suit, rather tragically had his medals when, um, you know, all the others were in military regalia and didn't even serve. And then, what, Camilla was in Oldfield, Kate was in Alexander McQueen, but no commercial, everyone knew they were wearing it, but there's no Instagram put out by McQueen or Oldfield to boast about it. It's just, did Harry, did he really make some money out of that too? Oh, I, look, I don't imagine. He probably oh. got a free suit. He probably got a free suit, Carol, and that's oh, it. Oh, Corrie. But, but um, what, it, what, is so, what I found so amazing about the, the Harry commentary is, uh, and I don't, I, I never for a, sec- a second did you expect that they were going to, um, kill the fatted calf because Harry had come home. I'd never thought he was going to be attending anything. No, but when you see did. it laid out to bear like that. Yeah, third row, pretty. It's pretty. pretty when, when, you know, William's kissing his father, apparently kissed him on the wrong cheek, that to do the coronation again. No, but that was a really lovely moment. Yeah. Some people said they got emotional. I never got emotional during No, it. I didn't. It, but it's interesting, just getting back to Harry, the, it, the, the Brits seem to be so torn on this issue, which I suppose you and I are, because you and I come sit on different sides of the Harry and Meghan fence. But in the Telegraph, reading the Telegraph on Sunday, the, the London Telegraph, um, there was one story by one of their correspondents, Celia Walden, who said Prince Harry came under duress and he looked like a surly teenager. And then in the same paper, a couple of pages along, was Bryony Gordon, who I think is a columnist, said that it took courage for Prince Harry to attend at all. So even in the one paper, you've got these diametric views about where was Harry, how was Harry. High points, I reckon, Zadok the priest, which they've been playing for centuries. I was quite happy with that. I did find a high point in the arrival of Harry and Andrew. I was dying to see where both of them were sitting, and I was uh, I was not disappointed there with the drama of that. I do love the jets when they get the jets flying over Buckingham Palace. Oh, with the red, white, and blue. There, Cle- we watched that. That was <laughs> clearly beautiful. Louis. Louis loved that as well. Uh, and there were a few, um, you know, fashion highlights. But I think pretty. I think it's safe to say that the fashions on the field were. Uh, pretty underwhelming for a coronation. Penny Mordaunt, how did you stand on her? Oh, I thought, do you know what? I a bit of a Grecian Olympic Airways vibe, wasn't it? (laughs) I thought she actually kind of rocked. The interesting thing about Penny Mordaunt is she was mentioned in dispatches when Liz Truss was, when they were looking for the successor to Boris Johnson. And Liz Truss clearly saw Penny as a bit of a rival. And so appointed... her to the, I think, chief of the, or the head of the lower house or the house of commons. I don't know what the actual title is, which of course means that she, the Lord President of the Privy Council, sorry. And I think she probably thought that she was moving her to one side as leader of the house of commons. But of course, as the Lord President of the Privy Council, she or he is the one who has to um, carry out all those official duties. So of course there was Penny front line and centre. Where was Liz Truss? Up the back. <laughs> so, well, it, so Penny had that won the day, but I thought she looked great. And she had to carry that, uh, that, um, two swords. Yeah. For, well, um, yeah. Were they swords or were they, uh, heavy sticks? I can't remember what they were now. I read one article saying that Penny Mordaunt was the, um, Pippa Middleton's bum of the coronation. <laughs> <laughs> you know how Pippa took over the um, the right. wedding anyway, which I thought was a bit tacky, but it was funny. You know what? There was one disappointment for me, and that was the fact that those protesters in London who held up placards saying "Not our King," there were people who were arrested and handcuffed mm. and taken to the slammer for a night. And I thought that was pretty off to the tower. I thought that was pretty ordinary, Carol, you know, really you, ordinary. Do you reckon? Um, do you reckon this is um, he will be Australia's last monarch? Yes, I do. I agree with you on that. I do. Although, you know, Anthony Albanese has made it pretty clear that that's not going to, not going to happen anytime soon. And he really threw himself into the whole event. And he did that, you know, big interview, which I was really surprised 
that he would do it in London with... Oh, um, Piers, um, Piers, Morgan. Piers Morgan. Thank yeah. you. Sorry, name slipped for me for a moment. Look, um, I, I think he will be, unless he leads a very short life, but you would think he won't, looking at his parents' longevity, because um, Prince William, what's Prince William now, in his early 40, 40s? Yep. Um, so you'd give Charles, you'd probably give him at least 15 years, although... He does. He does look. Didn't look great, did he? Is he got a de- doesn't look well. edema? That thing in his fingers? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, he's, say he's that. got the. Yeah, I think he does. He doesn't look very well. I thought uh, maybe that was the stress of the day. But uh, and I, I wish him well. But I don't think he looks all that well. Did you enjoy the balcony scene? The balcony scene I thought was really interesting. Very strategic, obviously, for who would be there and who would not be. It was a bigger crowd than I thought. Charles would. I thought he would just stick to his um, immediate family with all he, the pages and everything. Yeah, yep. and he included. I mean, Sophie and Edward. Just what did you call them? The Stephen Bradbury of the royal family. <laughs> <laughs> they are. The only ones not well. You know, they, they were never that sort of interesting. But the longer it goes. Oh, no. But Sophie looked great in her robes. I thought she did. She looked. And I love the robes. And her daughter, Lady Louise, looked um, looked very very elegant. I thought they. But they've they've come up a treat. But no Andrew on the balcony. Of, of course, course, no Harry. But I love the horses and I love the parade. The parade back to the palace was beautiful, yeah, wasn't it? It was lovely. London does that very well, even in the rain. Oh, the, I just thought that was spectacular. And um, our friends Rick and Sal are over there and they said they were up the night before and I they watched the dress rehearsal. That. I saw that on her Instagram account. Yeah, which at three was in the morning or something. The carriage. I mean, that was a good call to they get mu- up and watch <laughs> well, that. Well, they must have they must have had jet lag, surely. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, if you arrive in London sort of accidentally on purpose the night before the coronation, you're going to make the most of it. Oh, look, it was it was all very jolly. But for me, as I said, it just um, it just it, it is a prompt, I think, for a lot of Australians to think about our past and to think about our connection with England and where we stand on a whole lot of things. And in the end, Corrie, it was impossible, I guess, to relate to. Well, that, impossible. I think that's thing, you're right. Which is why we but you didn't. Rep- I wasn't there, but I imagine you didn't relate to the last coronation because it was so removed and so incredibly ornate and special and unique and like something in another world. But we can see this. We can completely relate to it. You know, there's TV, there's all the commentators that we're used to and you just go, no, that's not. Even even Camilla, you know, serving her husband. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's all it all it is all a bit odd. But Caro, I think the highlight of the whole night for me was to actually spend it with your mum and your two aunts. That was such a treasure. That was so much fun, and they really could have their own sitcom. The three of them. Um, the gags were thick and plenty, even though I don't think they realised that they were being ironic or. <laughs> what about Naughty on her date at the My Music Bowl for the last coronation? <laughs> I don't think I'm saying too much. No, you must and, not, because she was a schoolgirl, remember? And she looked around at the date and said, no, I don't think you're... <laughs> it, it brought her to her senses. And we thought, oh, marrying age, she must have been 22, and she said she was 14 goes, or 15. You were 15 or 14. <laughs> what were you doing out at the Maya Music Bowl in 1953? Anyway, it was great, and I was thinking about it today, driving, because I've come today from Ballarat, and we were having a chat last night about Mother's Day. Would we get together? We decided, no, Ballarat, Portsea, bit too. Too far, but um, but I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know, spending last Saturday night with your mum and the aunts was to me just as good as any Mother's Day. So thanks for having me; it was really lovely. Pleasure, Corrie. Well, we are getting together with mum. Well, those of us who are in Melbourne, which is me, and um, my, one of my daughters, me and myself and I, <laughs> and we're going to what was a private car yard, very small car yard in Cremorne that was um taken over by um, a very old friend of the family and it's now a wine bar and it's really cool apparently, according to Clem. I'll report in next week. I remember there there were lots and lots of car yards and your dad had a friend who I interviewed. Ron Carson. Why did I go and interview Ron Carson? Was I doing... Well, he was, was a on, Richmond person. Yeah. He was on the board, I think. He was on the board. and I think your dad said, go and talk to Ron. So I, I, He had a fridge full of diet ale. That's all I remember. <laughs> and I, I found myself lost in Cremorne, going, tapping on the door saying, hi, is Ron here with all these grease monkeys going, yeah, he's over there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it must have been something about footy or... It was, it must, well, I, it, I was right. Well, this I was is another footy. much smaller private little place where oh, people tinkered. So I'm going to fill you in on it next week. Great. Well, let's um, let's move on to the cocktail cabinet because we have to discuss Mother's Day Pinot Noirs. 
Miles Thompson is here with us in the studio. Well, the cocktail cabinet, Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store, of course, is here every week. And we love Prince Wine Store. If you haven't been down there to their Bank Street, South Melbourne, go and have a look. You also have a store in Sydney, Miles, don't you? Yeah, we do. So all our Sydney friends can go and visit there. Please. Or you can jump on princewinestore.com.au. Miles, we posed you the challenge last week, I suppose, Caro and I, Mother's Day coming up. Not that we are old enough to be your mother, but if we were your mother and you know how much we love Pinot Noir, what would you be suggesting that we have? What would you What would you gift wrap and give to each of us? Well, Pinot, obviously, is easy. <laughs> <laughs> Anything, really. Everyone likes Pinot. Well, most people like Pinot. I think you've got to be careful, particularly if you're going with something big and bold like Shiraz or Cabernet. You know, certain people sort of like it and that. So I guess Pinot is always the safe. But we have a Pinot mix dozen out at the moment too, So, which is 12 Pinots. So you could buy that for Mother's Day. Oh, what's in the box? Uh, so 12 Pinots from sort of everywhere. So Yarra Valley, Mornington. Uh, there's a little one from France. Yeah, so that's just come out. So that's a perfect little little gift. And what's your pick of those? So yeah, I, there's, there's a couple, I mean, there's lots of them that's really good, but I've got a little cheapy that's great from um, Wickham's Road, which is actually by Hoddles Creek. So so the Deanna, I don't know if anyone knows Boccaccio Cellars and and uh, their amazing super supermarket out, out in Kew, but they, they bring in a bunch of wines and, and the Deanna's own some vineyards in the Yarra Valley. Leo's. Yeah, is it yeah. Leo's? Yeah, Leo's. Yeah. <laughs> we know and Boccaccio, Leo's. And the Boccaccio Cellars yeah, right next that's door. That's right. I yeah. was, I, I've been banned for life from Leo's because it's the one supermarket where you can go and listen to Italian music on the loudspeaker. They have the most extraordinary array of dry and fresh produce. Yeah, I've and myself I always because came I go to spend 50 bucks exa- and, and I, I come up with 300. I know. Yeah. And Pete used yeah. to look at that when we lived in Hawthorne. I was there each week and he looked at the grocery bill and said, do you realise you're spending double at Leo's? I mean, yes, but they have nice music. <laughs> That's how they get you. Oh, it's a fabulous supermarket. And amazing anyway. cheese and amazing yeah. small goods and they're incredible. And then the Deanna's, they have Hoddles Creek, which is the winery, and then they make the Wickham's Road range, which is this sort of entry-level range, which is only about, I think this is $22. And this is a new one. This is from Whitlands. So this is, which is out near sort of Wangaratta, very high vineyard. So really sort of crunchy Amaro sort of thing going on. Lovely kind of like blood orange and sweet spice. Pinot, quite, quite fresh and bright because it's quite high up. So it's quite cool climate. So you get a real sort of zip of acidity in there, which keeps it quite light and fresh. But I mean, they are probably some of the best value Pinots in the country, any of the Wickham's Road wines, but this is a new one, the Whitlands. So... Pretty good. So from Wickham's Road and Wangaratta, where do we go to next? Uh, So the next one is Tassie. We've talked about Tassie Pinot plenty. And this is the the Glates-Dixon Advance. Advance, sorry. And this is a, it's a blend of a couple of different spots. Like I think Derwent, Tamar, um, and there's something else in there as well. And it's his entry-level Pinot. Um, he won a Jim, Jimmy Watson for his Tasmanian Shiraz many years ago. He's a very talented winemaker. What's maker. his name, Miles? Ben Glatzer. Glatzer, yeah. yep. And this is Glatzer Dixon. So they're sort of like Barossa sort of family, but he went and moved to, um, was he Ben? No, I think he's the other Glatzer. But the, he he moved to Tassie because he wanted to not make Shiraz essentially. Um, so he made this uh, advance. So it's been a whole bunch in it. So it gives it this lovely kind of really sort of punchy spice sort of element. And it's Tassie, so it's quite, it's got a bit more, bit more richness and punch to it as well. A bit more sort of juicy and plush, a bit richer, and it's a little bit more structured as well. It has a bit more fine sort of tannin in it, but lovely sort of bright sort of red and black fruit thing going on. Really, really good, and that's 36, I think, on the shelf. So a little more on the premium side. It's interesting you say that about Tasmanian wines being heavier because I often, um, if we're having a piece of meat on a Saturday night or something, and we think, okay, let's open a nice bottle. It's often the Tasmanian Pinot that I'll go for. Yeah. Because it's a bit, it's just, it's not as um, thin or light as some of the others. Yeah, I always think that it's got a little bit, you know, it, it's it's cooler, but I think can have a quite sort of long sort of growing season, but, but still be cool. So you kind of get this real sort of build in it. Um, so it's fantastic. And Tasmania I, and I, Pinot, Tasmania yeah. Riesling, Tasmania Gin. They're the three great. And with very, very good. good too. And Caro Clover Hill. Yep, yeah, sparkling. Yeah, sparkling wine. And, and then I've I got, got a Pinot Champagne too. Oh, really? Well, and uh, from Andre Clouet, which we've probably talked oh, about yeah. before, but it's Pinot. 100% Pinot. What colour is it? It's, it's white. It's white. Yeah. Yep. So doing 100% Pinot 
Champagne is very difficult. Um, I imagine. Yeah, you normally see it blended, but Jean-Francois Clouet does a really fantastic job. This has been so popular for us, this champagne. But yeah, 100% Pinot. It's got this really love. It's super Moorish and plush and just, it's so easy to drink this champagne. I mean, it's hugely popular for us. He does that. He does the NV and he does a, a pink as well. And he does some other wines, but the, just the standard blue label and these beautiful labels on it as well. So well, that's a, they're $85. So that's I mean, a great Mother's Day. It, well, I, I love that. Well, I thought Pinot, Pinot, Pinot. But you um, you introduced the Andre Clouet to Caro and I. We had never. Yeah, you've had it, it before. before right? Yeah, I love it. I, yeah. in fact, yeah, I, I wish might... you hadn't introduced us to it, Miles. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's our it's our go to when we're playing high end Scrabble. When we think, oh, let's just open a beautiful bottle. It's so easy to to drink that champagne. Yeah, hence the low Scrabble scores, probably. Excellent. Um, so the, I, I'm loving the sound of <laughs> Speak the. Speak for yourself, um, Corey. I'm loving the sound of the Du and Tamar. Blend there, the advanced, the, really yeah, good, the yeah. Glatzer Dixon. So that's thirty six, and how much is your um, Andre Clouet? That I think it's eighty five at the moment. Great, with and the M E double, and then you can get the Wickham's Road and Wickham's Road one is twenty two. So there's a nice diversity there. Yeah, that's right. A few little price points. So whatever you want to do to splash out, you can. Thank you. Well, we will all jump on princewinestore.com.au and buy your mum a Pinot. Caro, time for BSF Book, Screen and Food. And uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to kick it off with what I think is probably going to be, this is a big statement, it's probably going to be in the short list, if, well, certainly I imagine it will make the long list of the Miles Franklin Award for 2023, which the long list I think will be announced very shortly. This is called Limberlost by Robbie Arnott. Caro, Robbie is a young Tasmanian writer and this is his third book, and he is—he uh, is a talent to watch. He is of the Tim Winton, Sophie Laguna variety. He is definitely somebody to watch. He has an innate sense of the landscape, the Australian character, and um, I think he has a great career ahead of him. In fact, he already has a terrific career. It was very sad for me that Robbie, who was going to come to the Surrender Writers Festival to to, to do three panels, including one on Tas- talking about Tasmania. He was unable to come at the last minute due to family reasons. So we missed meeting him, but um, I started reading his book before all of that happened and um, and I really couldn't put it down. So highly recommend Limber Lost by Robbie Arnott. And Caro, it's a book of a man's journey, really, a life journey. And um, it, has a t- it has a feeling about it of uh, a Tim Winton, Sophie Laguna, kind of Jasper Jones by Craig Sylvie sort of story. It's a, a lot of it is coming of age, but we actually go through the life of Ned. And uh, Ned uh, Williams, we first meet him or really get to know him um, as a teenager, but the book opens when he is five and he is in a boat with his father and two older brothers and they witness a harpooned whale in the sea going mad, going crazy. And to the five-year-old Ned, this is shocking and horrifying and scary as, but it stays with him forever. And so during his teenage years, all he wants to do is to make enough money to uh, to buy a boat, which he eventually does. But he does this by... Um, by uh, so this is World War Two. The two older brothers have gone to the war to fight and Ned is 15 and at home on the family apple farm with his widowed father and an older sister who uh, who comes home from the city to be with them. And Ned hunts rabbits in Tasmania's River Valley and he turns the pel- he skins them and sells the pelts and the pelts are turned into slouch hats for soldiers. And he makes quite a lot of money um, for uh, someone so young and he gets a good deal on a boat and he and his father restore the boat. And it's a rather lovely story what happens there. But we follow Ned through his life and what happens uh, after particular circumstances. And in a way, Caro, it reminds me of um, almost like an Australian version of Stoner by John Williams, which oh. is a simple story of a man, one man's life. Not, not a lot happens, but a lot does, if you know what I mean. Um, and it traces the, the development of the boy to a man as the boy tries to make sense of the world around him. And it also, there were times when I did think of Ian McEwan's lessons, which you and I loved over summer. And I I just think this is a really lovely 
I did say coming of age because that is a fair chunk of the book, but it does follow a life in the most gentle way. But the but the talent of Robbie Arnott to capture the landscape the way he does, and uh, and the flora, the fauna. And the people of Tasmania, I think this is just a really beautiful book. And it's a good one for book clubs, actually. Did you read A Girl of the Limberlost as a kid by Gene Stratton Porter? No, it was I did a, not. It was a classic. He was a naturalist. Who was Gene Stratton Porter? I've American novelist, um, naturalist. And it was, a, it was a sort of a romance novel, but set the Limberlost in this, that book was the sort of swamps of Indiana, I think. And it was made into a couple of films. But it was a it was a book that had a real effect on me when I was younger. It's considered a bit of a classic, and so I'm interested to hear that Limberlost in this case, Limberlost refers to Tasmanian. Well, it, well, the Limberlost is the name of their property, but yes, oh. it has that sort of double entendre meaning. Absolutely right, and um, and it is a nostalgic look back at a life, a 20th century life, and because we then catch up with Ned as an old man. So, of course, it's, I guess it's turn of the century and the modern world and his fear that the natural world that he loved so much is, is passing by. Um, it's, it is an incredibly simple story, but, um, but as The Guardian in their review noted, sometimes these simple stories are often the hardest ones to tell. And that's The Beauty of Stoner by John Williams. If nobody's read that, that's another one too that I would recommend. Anyway, that's Limberlost by Robbie Arnott. And just keep an eye on it. It just won last week the Age Book of the Year. And I think mm. it will be featuring on several uh, short and long lists throughout the year. Caro, on to screen. And you and I have been binging. Yes, following from my recommendation last week that several people, including my sister, said we had to watch, is The Diplomat made this year. Um, there's, a, according to Xenia Williamson, who got in touch with us, there's another diplomat produced for the BBC on Binge, which she says is much better than the one we're watching on Netflix. This one on Netflix is just complete. It's so addictive, isn't it? it it's well, pretty shallow. It's really entertaining. Yeah, epi- episode written. one and two are really smart and you think that you're in a high-end drama, but and then episode three became a bit farcical. But, look, I, I hung in there. I loved... Um, so the diplomat um, is she. Her, the character is called Kate Wyler. She's a, a very experienced civil servant. She's the, she's um, a, a career ambassador. She thinks she's being sent to Kabul, and at the last minute they say, "Oh no, you're off to London to be the British, uh, the the ambassador to Britain." And there's a plot behind that. There's there a plot plans behind for it. I mean, Kerry Russell, I've always really loved. I loved her in the American. And Felicity. Felicity, yeah, the, the, when that. she was a lot younger. And she's become a really, you know, accomplished actor. And her husband, played by Rufus Sewell, is a fascinating character. Hal. Hal. Yeah. As in the Shakespeare Hal. It's so interesting. So, Caro, uh, do you think, uh, Checker and I were wondering this the other night watching it, Rufus Sewell has had an eye job. Remember how he used to have very uh, kind of poppy eyes? Clearly. Doesn't he look amazing? Clearly. Just quickly. Great acting by him. Don't confuse it. Bizarrely, the other diplomat is also made this year. It's a British political thriller. It um, stars Sophie Rundle as Laura Simmons, a diplomat living in Barcelona, Spain, who protects um, works to protect several British nationalists who find themselves in trouble. So don't what's, be... And what's that on? That's on uh, Binge. Made by right. the BBC. Okay. But the one we're watching on Netflix, look, you won't be able to stop watching it. I, 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 you, when you left my house, you said, and I sat on the sofa, I was I really tired on Sunday, <laughs> and I just I watched about three in a row. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah, it is. It's really good. Um, there's, a, there's a husband and wife um, argument fight scene in the garden, which was highly improbable as far as I was concerned. But, that was a bit silly. But there's a bit of politics behind this uh, and, um, and, and a bit of machinations from the public servants who are trying to line up the next president and all of that sort of thing. So, uh, and, 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 a, and, a pisk, and a pisky, rude British prime minister, which it sounds very familiar to me because I've had a few of those. Oh, he's time. a pain in the neck, but the foreign secretary, is it the foreign secretary? Yes. He's the interesting yes, one. Yes, I know. Mm. We could be hotting up there. And Ali Ahn, who is a CIA operative who sort of runs things in London, She's fantastic and she's having a relationship with, and I don't think we meant to know about this, about, I I guess, um, Kate Wyler's EA. Is mm. that what he is? I yeah. suppose he is. Advisor. Arto yeah. He's brilliant Yeah, he's too. great. There's some great acting. There really is some great acting and beautiful scenes of London and the countryside and, and so on. And the ambassador's house that was, in fact, mm. um, 
Barbara Hutton, as we're told in the first episode, mm. brought it just before she married Kerry Grant. It's the second biggest garden in London apart from Buckingham Palace. Mm. Is that correct. right? Correct. Yeah, it's beautiful. Just on Regent's Park. Yeah. Oh, it's, it, no, it's, a, it's really worth it, particularly now the weather's closing in. It's a nice thing to do. Caro, speaking of weather closing in, uh, I uh, loved your coronation quiche the other day and um, mm. I think it's a really good autumn recipe. So can you share it with us? First of all, an apology, Corrie. Um, on Thursday, I went shopping. I brought all the ingredients for my weekend of entertaining. And I, I wasn't going to make the pastry, but I bought the puff. It's puff pastry that is the base. And there's a very simple recipe that Prince Charles put out. So Prince Charles's office decided this was going to be, you know, for Queen Elizabeth, it was Constance Spry's coronation chicken, which mum made, claimed she can't remember it ever being pink and having red wine in it. But anyway, it was beautiful. Um, he put out this coronation quiche. It was perfect for him, vegetarian, reasonable to make in terms of cost and quite simple. And everybody was laughing about it and scoffing about it. I bought all the ingredients. It was very hard to find broad beans. I ended up having to find buy frozen broad beans because it's just the wrong season. And then... Uh-oh. What's happened? Full disclosure. Um, Anna from the op shop, Sister Julie, texted me and said, alert, alert, they're making them at um, Croutons, which is a fabulous food shop, as you Croutons know. Croutons in, in Couillon. <laughs> in Glenferry Glen Road, Couillon. What?! I bought, I bought it. I went and bought it, but I've also, I'm going to tell you how to make it. I, you know what I love? One of the, I mean, there are lots of things I love about you, Caroline Wilson, but one of them is you always stumble on brought and bought, I know. which one you use. It's I hilarious. It. I bought it. I know, but before you said something, I know. <laughs> I know. I, it, I really do struggle with it. You do. Um, this... Caro, are you telling me I had a bought quiche? You did. And I confessed it on the night. So don't, don't be like that. But look, I am urging. From Croton. I'm going to make How it myself. How is David at Crouton? I tell you what, it was um, it was absolutely, absolutely delicious. It was delicious. <laughs> the ingredients are simple. There are very few ingredients. Have you in have this. you rang Daz for the recipe? No, well, I've got the recipe. Oh, you, you, I, no, I thought you you were you, you were giving us the crouton recipe. Well, the recipe was actually put out by the BBC and many others, and the the basic veggie ingredients are spinach, broad beans, and tarragon. Um, a lot of tasty cheese, milk, and really, um, that's about it. It's yeah, but don't ask Carol how you cook it because she doesn't well, know. Well, no, it's pretty simple. You roll out the pastry and, you you know, you blind bake and you do all that sort of stuff. And then you make the filling and um, if, forget the pastry. If you've bought one 250-gram block of ready-made short crust pastry, this is a filling. Double cream, 175 mils, which is still sitting in my fridge. Milk, two eggs a tablespoon of freshly chopped tarragon, salt and pepper, 100 grams grated cheddar, 180 grams cooked spinach and 60 grams cooked broad beans or you can do soybeans, you know, like mm. endanami, is that how you pronounce it, beans? Edamame. Thank you, Thank Jane. Thank you, Jane. So you basically... Um, she probably grows those as well. <laughs> you line the pastry case, as you always do, with greaseproof paper, add the baking beans and blake blind for 15 minutes and you put everything in. You basically beat the milk cream, the eggs, the herbs and the seasoning... You scatter grated cheese in the um, on the base top, and then add all the other stuff. It is delicious. Mm. It's simple, cheap, and I'm going to make it this weekend. Are you? To well, you prove better before, the, before the cream goes off. I actually left you some cream there too from the cake. <clears throat> well, who knows where that's going to go? Maybe in scrambled eggs. Did you finish the cake? Oh, yeah. Brendan had it Sunday night. I think there's one piece left. You made the most beautiful pear and ricotta mm, cake. I, I think, I think Miss Jane, we've done it on the show before because I did say, oh, that can go on the podcast. But Caro and Clem said we're very assured that I'd done You've this one definitely before. definitely done it before. That was BSF. Thank you, Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131806 and then you can cook your quiche without the electricity failing? Caro, you're grumpy. Believe it or not, Corrie, I have an automobile issue. Unlike you... Off it, my patch. It doesn't involve my car being towed, a parking ticket or um, anything to do with traffic. Inexplicably, my car... It's probably time I had a look at this car. I've had my car for a long time. It's leaking. It's leaking. So... What, leaking oil or leaking water from the water. top? Water. Oh, so you get wet in the car. Well, no, not my side. The passenger side... 
floor of the passenger side, I couldn't work out why I kept putting things on the on the passenger side floor. You know how you put a bag of shopping or a laptop or they were all coming out wet, including, you know, newspapers coming out soggy. Okay, so oh, wait on. First of all, nobody should put their laptop in the passenger seat or where where a robber can see it because you're going to end up with a smash window and your laptop. If you're travelling with it from one place to the other, you can put it there and then take it out. Oh, not good for the laptop to get wet. And in fact, I, I, I might have given um, our friend from the other podcast, Craig Hutchison, a lift the other day and he put his briefcase down, at, on, you know, on the floor of the... And he, when he lifted it out, I noticed he felt underneath it and I was too scared to say, oh dear, I forgot to tell you. I don't know whether it's coming from underneath or through the windscreen. Brendan thinks it's through the windscreen. It is sopping wet. And then it finally dries out and then it rains again and gets wet again. I've got to do something about it. You it do. is ruining. You do. It is ruining. Because your carpet will smell. Oh, it absolutely stinks of wet dog, as Craig accuses it of smelling of every time he gets in the car. I feel like saying, listen, it's a free lift chum, you know, <laughs> stop complaining. Get an Uber. But I did feel bad about his briefcase. It, and I, I think um, my brother left a cap in there um, the weekend of the Riders Festival and it's got these brown stains all over it. It's a disaster. Oh, you have to get that fixed. It's one of those boring, awful jobs, but it's really serious, particularly because it looks like it's going to rain for the next 10 years. Mm. So that's what I'm grumpy about. Oh. Um, Corrie, you want to kick off six quick questions I will. for Red Energy? And we, who do we call? We call 131. Uh, what do we call? I've, you just said that and I haven't got the number. 131806 Red Energy. Now, Caro, which alleged boycott raised your eyebrows this week? The decision by Qantas to stop... Um, serving Finn Reviews, copies of the Finn Review in the Qantas Lounge and even block the financial review Wi-Fi on Qantas flights. Allegedly, this has been reported in The Age and the City Morning Herald because of the Finn Review's coverage of Qantas Chairman Richard Goyder. I mean, we've been getting stuck into him as AFL Chairman on this podcast. I mean, the fact that he announced his new CEO last week of Qantas and got her name wrong was not a great start. Name the other one of the other candidates. Anyway, I wonder if he would have made that mistake if she was a he. Anyway, just saying. And she's the, the new CEO's learning earning significantly less. Mm, I noticed than that Alan too. Joyce. I wondered about that. Although I mean, I'm quite happy that she's earning less because Alan Joyce was on a bomb amount of money. As but somebody said this isn't going to end well for Richard Goiter. Mm. I, I think to boycott if it is right that they're no longer served because Finn Review have been ridiculous. so ridiculous. And it's funny because the columns are by a guy called Joe Aston who's been getting stuck into Richard Goiter. But I noticed he was at Gather Round, which Richard Goiter was there at as well in Adelaide. And Were they seemed, chatting? Well, he seems to be a very good friend of Gillan McLaughlin, who is always at AFL events. Oh, so. Joe, hold on to those uh, hold, hold, on, hold on to those frequent flyer points. They might just, just disappear. Corrie, which court case is currently absorbing your time? The writer E. Jean Carroll, who's accused former President Donald Trump of sexually assaulting her in 1995 or 1996, I don't know which one it is actually, um, but she's suing Donald Trump for um, raping her in, uh, in is it Macy's? I can't remember the store now. Um, they're in the lingerie department, and uh, Bergdorf Goodman, sorry, and, um, and he recognised her because she's a well-known journalist around town, or she was at the time, before she completely lost her nerve and has been um, living a rather sad life since this happened because she was so traumatised, she alleges. But she is suing him. It's a civil case, Caro. And as we speak, the arguments uh, for defence and prosecution are taking place in in the um, court in New York. And we will learn, I think, in the next couple of days whether um, she has a case and whether Donald Trump will have to pay. So that is interesting, especially when you consider Carol is one of at least 26 women who have accused Donald Trump of sexual harassment or assault since the 1970s. It's an amazing case. Caro, does it matter where Barry Humphreys has his memorial service? Yes, and I'm so disappointed it's going to be in Sydney. Now, I wonder if this has got a bit to do in the end with the comedy festival and what they did and how they removed his name from their award. It is said that the family... I, 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 gather, I gather state funerals are very difficult events to negotiate and getting families to agree um, on timing, on place, on how they're carried out, procedure, etc., are very difficult. I thought it was interesting that Anthony Albanese told Piers Morgan it was going to be a, 
a sort of a tripart, a three-way sort of situation with federal New South Wales and Victorian governments. That was news certainly to the Victorian government, according to the Premier, Daniel Andrews. Now we hear the family was disappointed. I think Peter Ford reported the family was disappointed. The state government came in late with their offer. I don't think that's correct. I mean, it was reported that they came in almost on the day. Um, but I just, and I know Barry Humphreys spent his last days in Sydney and lived a lot in Sydney, but he's a Melbourne boy. He's a boy from Camberwell. He went to Melbourne Grammar. He performed first at Melbourne Uni. This is about heritage. And maybe I'm just being, well, you're not patriotic about your own state, but I feel that in the end, it should have been in Melbourne. Dame Edna was from Mooney Pond. Would he not have expressed his wishes? No, I, I, I gather, you know, reading between the lines of all the articles, there were varying views in the family. Oh, goodness. And um, the, the view that it had to be in Sydney won the his day. Because his boys were raised in, um, in Sydney, yeah. but his daughter, his daughter from his first marriage is in Melbourne. Both daughters. Um, no, two were, daughters. Both yeah. daughters were raised in Melbourne, yeah. were born in Melbourne. I, I just think it's a real pity because of his, Mel- his Melbourne heritage stands out to me in his work, in his poetry, in his performances, and obviously Mooney Pond. Really, really disappointing. So, yes, Corrie, it does well, matter. Well, we might just have to have our own celebratory moment. We'll be watching it on TV up at the Opera House, I guess. I'm going to the Opera House this week to see the ballet. I'll report in on that next week Oh, too. goody. Can't wait. Another trip, Caro. That's, That's not it. like you. That's it. What, well, I've got family there. I go to, have to go oh, to Sydney once Dale, don't justify it to me. It's all right. Well, I'm not justifying it. I'm going to see my family and going to the ballet. What's your favourite Dame Edna line? Oh, so many. But I love this one. I, I can't do a voice, so I'm not going to even try. I was born in Melbourne with a precious gift. Dame Nature stooped over my cot and gave me this gift. It was the ability to laugh at the misfortunes of others. <laughs> I do love this one from Barry himself. He said, to live in Australia permanently is rather like going to a party and dancing all night with one's mother. <laughs> Caro, Lions coach Chris Fagan's weekend statement regarding media coverage of the Hawthorne racism saga. Good call? Bad call? Oh, I think it was a good call. It was a a frustrated beyond belief call. Um, Enough, said Chris Fagan, about the reporting of this, some of which has, obviously a lot of it has been done without contacting him. A lot of it has been, well, some of it's been factually incorrect. Other things have been reported without his knowledge, you know, not factually incorrect, but I think what he was saying was this has to be fixed. You know, the AFL blamed Hawthorne for letting this investigation get out of control. They handled it appallingly. And now the AFL has let it get out of control. And no one can agree where the mediation is going to be held, let alone whether there's going to be mediation. As someone said yesterday, it's a lawyer's picnic. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 dry. It, it is, I don't know how Chris Fagan is getting up every day and going to work and you know, he's saying he's completely innocent of everything that's been alleged to have been said about him. Ditto Alistair Clarkson, who's probably struggling even more. Um, so this independent inquiry is, what, too independent? Well, it's it's fine that it's independent, but it was put together by the AFL. In the end, Gillan McLaughlin's done a lot of big deals in the last few weeks. This mightn't be a deal, but this he's got to find an outcome. He's got to deliver an outcome that suits everyone and he's got to step in now and make it, if he's got one more job, this is the only job he should be focusing on now because it's hurting everyone involved. I'm not sure if all the families are still involved in the negotiations. I know a lot of people have given evidence, ex-Hawthorne players, but Clarkson and Fagan haven't. And they are, they're trying to get... And they're prepared to, aren't they? Yes, but mm-hmm. they're trying to get information from Hawthorne that hasn't become available to them for complex reasons. So it's a... He, look, it, that was just a big, big story because it was a sign of how frustrated and angry and devastated he's been by this. Corrie, you have an amazing <laughs> royal fact, I gather. I do. It's a few facts, and it relates to those pesky Hanovers who were the, um, <laughs> who were the relatives of Charles III. Um, as we know, the first Hanover, George I, was brought over from Germany, from Hanover, and couldn't speak a word of English uh, ever, I think, in his life. He came over about two weeks before his coronation, so that was nice for him to put in the time there. But I was reminded of this. Uh, our history club a few weeks ago uh, was doing the 18th century. That was our topic. And I said, I'll, I'll do the Hanovers because I'm obsessed by them. And um, didn't make it for whatever reason to the history club that night. But 
I was listening to Tom and Dom on the Rest is History podcast, and they had an episode last week called Coronations, Chaos, Ceremony and Empire. The giggling by the two of them is is just infectious. And they talk about there were two shambolic coronations in a row. George III um, is the nader, they say. <laughs> But followed by George the Fourth, not much better. But George the Third, Kara. So it's seventeen sixty one. It's the coronation of the new king, and if you can just picture it, they used to in those days have a big banquet in Westminster Hall, as it was known, um, complete with pies, picnics, rowdy members of the public, and a sluice. Do you know what a sluice is? It, I should, but I don't. They have a quote Great slu- word. sluice for the reception of urinary discharges. Oh, <laughs> because of course the coronation went for six hours. Very badly organised. There were oh. too many, pe- too many people, too many crowds swarming to get into Westminster Abbey, and of course carriages were delayed for hours. The organiser was Thomas, second Earl of Effingham. He was put in charge of the event. Event management, not Thomas's strong suit, I would suggest. (laughs) He organised the event but forgot a whole lot of coronation stuff. He forgot the thrones, so there was nowhere for the king and queen to sit. I would have thought that was quite important. He forgot the sword of state. At the last minute they've gone, oh, my God, we haven't got a sword. So thank thank God for the Lord Mayor of London who stepped forward and said, "Um, sir, you can have mine. They even forgot the canopy, which used to be a significant part of, well, still is, I guess, of, of the proceedings. And there were not enough troops to hold the crowds back who were lunging toward Westminster because they wanted to be involved. So the, the soldiers had, to, the troops had to pull out their swords and force people back, which is not a good look when it's supposed to be a day of harmony. Who's the equivalent of Harry the Hire back then? <laughs> or the big group? <laughs> where were they when you, where was Bruce Chibo when you needed him? And apparently, this is a quote, confusion, irregularity and disorder, close quote, were part of the day. The Queen and King entered the Abbey shortly after 1.30pm, but didn't get around to the procession and the ceremony until 3.30. The crowds were so bad, they actually couldn't get themselves down the aisle to the front of the church for two hours. (laughs) On the way to the Abbey, the Bishop of Rochester nearly dropped the crown he was carrying. Fortunately, it had been pinned to the cushion. And one spectator noted that the heralds made quote, numerous mistakes and stupidities in their trumpeting. What a disaster. <laughs> but the best one of all was they, um, because of this long period of time, they set up a royal chamber pot in a little um, kind of booth situation at the back of the... What, for the sluice? <laughs> That's for the men. This was for Queen, this was for Queen Charlotte. And so I guess it must have been at about the, you know, three-quarter mark of the of the proceedings she needed to go to the bathroom and she headed around there to just quietly have a whatever she was going to do only to find that sitting there sitting there on her ch- on her chamber was um one male aristocrat who was having a, a long session a bit of a dump <laughs> how disgusting and um, and so she was horrified. To, it was the Duke of Newcastle. Sorry, I was scratching around for his name. He was on a different kind of throne. And um, and at some point in the proceedings, a large jewel is reputed to have fallen out of the king's crown. And people said later that must have been the omen presaging the American independence. Everyone bought pic- picnics, no rehearsal, six-hour ceremony. London was just a wreck afterwards. People looting, writing, <coughs> writing. It was by all accounts an absolute catastrophe. So I just thought I would share that with you, but um, very funny. And Char- and George the Fourth was not much better, and one and is considered one of the most expensive coronations in the history of the British monarchy. So there you go. Wow. Well, there, there was a major jewel on the front of um, King Charles's crown, wasn't there? That comes from Rome or somewhere where it shouldn't have come from. I have to delve into the history of that, but um, that is amazing. Well, you can't say this one wasn't precision organised. Well, apart from Camilla sort of fiddling a bit with her hair and her crown. Well, the, uh, well, we don't know what happened. We don't know how many different things went wrong, do we? It seemed to be seamless, but then BBC cameras were told very much to, for example, stay away from Edward, stay, uh, stay away from Harry, stay away from Andrew. 
I think there were strict rules and regulations. They wouldn't have been showing Queen Camilla going off to the bathroom at the back of the uh, back of the night. No, we we did know Georgie Alt- picked up that Louis had disappeared for a while, right. um, and uh, we never saw. Um, yeah, he, to, to run around and, and expend some energy, said Georgie. Yes, and we never saw our Mary arrive, which was disappointing. Oh, and didn't she look beautiful in she purple? Looked, what? Where did you stand on Julie Bishop's outfit? Um, I didn't see Julie Bishop's outfit. Well, she had an extraordinary outfit Was she in on. blue? A lot of the women were in blue. Yes. It was very interesting. Oh, was it? Yeah. And, there, I mean, there were a lot what of celebs. Emma Tom. I'm, I'm trying to read your face here. I normally think she think she looks did fabulous. She go the, did she go the foxy Julie or did she go the sedate corporate no, Julie? Regal, I would say. Oh, really? Tiara. I, I, no. We didn't see um, Emma Thompson arrive, which would have been great. Oh, my God. Jane's just showing me what's on their head. Well, how would you describe her outfit? Uh, Edwardian. Yeah. And I would say on her head is a great big uh, lily lily pad. Yeah, it was interesting And outfit. it's white. It's cream. I, I, I thought only the royal family was supposed to wear cream. I thought some of the um, outfits were terrible. I didn't get to see Emma Thompson. I didn't get to see Dame Judi Dench. But look... All of that, um, it wasn't a wedding after all. It was a coronation. Yeah, and so it wasn't I... about the visiting celebrities. Although I did lo- enjoy Lionel Richie, you know, partying on. Not late. all night long. Yeah, well, <laughs> Lionel, time to... Last time I saw him <laughs> was at the time, grand time, final replay. Time to put it, it to bed. There. Time to put it to bed. Well, on that happy note, and as your mother said, no tiara, no long frocks. The coronations aren't what they used to be. Don't shoot the messenger. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. And if you'd like to support the podcast, tell a friend about the show. Perhaps they haven't discovered it yet. You can send us an email to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook using the handle at don'tshootpod and sign up for our weekly email. We'll send you the show notes straight to your inbox. And of course, thanks to our show sponsors, Red Energy and Prince Wine Store.